Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At the End of the Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur ethologist Richard Oliver. In the last two episodes I talked about the Honourable Society of Worthwhile Preservation, a group who dubbed themselves the arbiters of who and what got to survive. Yours truly had been on their list of those who shouldn't survive and they had a rather drastic and permanent solution to that problem. Fortunately, things didn't turn out the way they planned. That was because the Weird Adler Company had intervened as the Honourable Society were talking about destroying their new possession, England. Safely back on the train, it is very difficult to acknowledge that the Weird Adler Company saved my life, and I can't help but think that as a debt they won't forget. The Central Government Authority continues its legal battle with the Weird Adler Company about the fate of England, and it's probably best to leave them to it and not get involved. After leaving Longshadow, the plan was to head down the west coast of England and just see what we could find. We certainly found something. As we were rattling along at high speeds, we actually picked up a radio transmission. It was very weak, but spoke of a small community of survivors, and from what we could tell from the transmission, they weren't far away. It wasn't on the maps, which suggested it had been built after the apocalypse had started. Usually, these sort of new towns start off as a few survivors huddling together in tents, and if they manage to survive, this attracts more people. The tent camp gets bigger, and then someone suggests making some more permanent structures, and not long after that, you have a town. From what we could tell, they still relied on scavenging resources from abandoned towns and cities nearby, not generating their own electricity or growing their own food. The only thing of note nearby was an army bunker, but that had been abandoned long before the apocalypse. This had been the first time in a little while that the captain was able to organise a proper welcoming party. This was made up of a squad of soldiers, staff from the Central Government Authority, usually some impressive personages like scientists, doctors and so on, and usually me as well, as that seemed to impress people. We would also have someone from the Phoenix Foundation, a non-profit making organisation set up by generous billionaires to help rebuild the world, and who had filled the funding gap left by the Weird Adler Company. Zofia Sitko had also decided to accompany me, as she pointed out, not unfairly, that usually I needed someone to save me. There were 24 of us, including me, who would be going to visit the town. We were also bringing food, medical supplies, batteries, and all kinds of things these people probably really needed. I looked round our group and realised the captain had selected 12 of the less trigger-happy soldiers. After all, this was not a military mission. The soldiers were there primarily as a sign of civilization and infrastructure. People who had lived through the apocalypse often found the presence of trained, well-armed people very reassuring. Aside from me and Sophia, there were 10 other people. I knew all of them, except for the person representing the Phoenix Foundation, but my ignorance didn't last long as he bounded over to introduce himself. He was a big man, full of energy and enthusiasm. He grabbed my hand and shook it vigorously and introduced himself as Clark Olson, and insisted I call him Clark. He told me he hadn't got round to listen to my show, but it was on his list and he was sure he would like it. Barely had I introduced myself and he had moved on to Sophia again shaking her hand enthusiastically and saying how I would love to talk to her about her time fighting for Napoleon. He looked like a typical office worker who had been thrust into the field, but with the requisite resources to buy whatever equipment a novice thought they would need. And he looked like he had dressed more for Skull Island than England. But if I needed a box of matches, a survival blanket, or quinine, I knew who I would go to. The other important people in the group were Michael Bracken and Martina Rossi of the CGA and Captain Tessie Alou in command of the soldiers. Life hacks. Here are a few useful life hacks that we've picked up over the years. 
Charging your mobile phone, your tablet, your MP3 player and all your other devices is such a chore. Not to mention expensive. Or even, you know, impossible if you're not in the international electric grid. So why not travel to Scandinavia with their numerous reported cases of transmitted electric field dysfunction, where sufferers of this unique condition can generate and discharge electricity. And while it can be extremely dangerous, if you got yourself infected, you'd never need to worry about charging your gadgets again. To protect against doppelgangers replacing your loved ones, write on the back of their neck an UV pen when they're asleep. Why when they're asleep? Some doppelgangers can actually access the victim's memory, so it's essential your loved ones do not know about your attempts to help them. To get back at warlords who have kidnapped you to harvest you for blood and or organs, have an incorrect blood type tattooed on your body. That'll show them. Exercise tip. If you work in a stuffy office, instead of sitting around a table for a meeting, have meetings where you're pursued by shambling zombies. Ready to level up? Upgrade to running zombies. Need money in an emergency? Hide cash in your shoe. Slip a credit card into your phone case. Get gold fillings in your teeth. Sew diamonds into the lining of your clothes. Replace your fingernails with platinum. Remember, many zombie weapons originally had different functions. Cricket and baseball bats were for sports. Shovels can be used to dig. Machetes harvest crops. You may have a horde of useful tools just waiting to be used. If you are desperate to save fuel, and we all are, park in the shade to stop petrol from evaporating from your engine. Warning though, if you live in an area with a vampire problem, think really carefully about how desperate you want to save petrol. Use temporal anomalies to your advantage. An area in your house where time has stopped? That's a makeshift hospital. Time running backwards? Fill this area with expired food and watch it become edible again. Portal to 12th century Asia? Join the Mongolian horde and pillage what you need in the past and bring it home to the present. Save spent bullet cases to make jewellery and cufflinks, or simply keep them in a massive pile as a chilling reminder of the violence of our times. If you live near the quarantine zone and want to avoid pesky neighbours or unwanted guests, just paint a big letter Q on your front door. I guarantee you'll get no more uninvited guests. It was a walk of several hours. Well, even a bit longer than that given how out of shape some of us were and we made it after the town after it had already gotten dark. We had hoped to get there earlier, as stumbling across the town in the dark was a good way to panic people. But like I said, some people, one of them possibly me, had slowed us down. This may not surprise my listeners, but I don't own good shoes for hiking through the English countryside. Anyway, we arrived at the town and saw the caravans, tents and quite a few permanent structures. I'd have guessed somewhere between 100 and 200 people lived there. Now, a few things can go wrong at this moment. They could be cannibals, or being controlled by mind parasites, or just your regular crazy apocalyptic survivors. But let's assume that's not the case, and they're happy to see you and have no sinister ulterior motives. Then this is probably the best moment in this job. You are literally bringing civilization to people, and they are overwhelmed by it. And let me tell you, there isn't a party like an apocalypse survivor gets brought back to the world party. And on a personal note, for some of these people, it's my podcast that has been the single shining beacon telling them that the world is still out there. Have you any idea what kind of fans you get after that? Really though, this is just a long way of saying that these people did not seem pleased to see us. Most of them were inside their houses, but the few that weren't looked at us with genuine horror. A child actually screamed and ran away from us. Martina Rossi reminded everyone, especially the heavily armed soldiers, to remain calm. 
She stepped forward, her hands high in the air, and in a calm and reassuring voice said, We're friends. We're here to help, and now everything's going to be okay. And when she says it, you really believe it. Even me. That's 95% of her job right there. Just saying that and making it sound convincing. Martina is the sort of person who could take charge in a crisis just by stepping forward. It's a rare and valuable skill. But it should be remembered, it doesn't actually mean she knows what she's doing. There was no response to Martina, but the people were talking amongst themselves. Some people vanished in the buildings and returned with more people. Gun spotted, snapped Captain Alou. The soldiers tensed but didn't do anything, and when I saw the gun, I could understand why. Someone had emerged from a building clutching a double barrel shotgun. And while yes, it might technically be a weapon, but compared to what our soldiers had, it was more like an affectation. Importantly, the woman wasn't actually pointing it at us. You need to leave. Now, said the woman with the shotgun, who had advanced to the front of the group. We're from the government, Martina repeated in a tone of voice designed to calm the situation. We've borrowed food, medical supplies. You're not alone anymore. The conversation continued between our two groups, but I had become distracted by someone else. A person, by themselves, standing in a doorway, mostly in shadow. He was absolutely motionless, and there was something... something off about him. He was, for lack of a better word, blurry. The conversation was growing more heated, and I looked back at Martina, who was completely calm and at ease, even though the shotgun had now been aimed at her. When I looked back to the strange man in the doorway, he had moved and was only a few feet from me. I jumped in surprise and there was a sudden commotion. Sir, stop right there, ordered Captain Alou. Her gun wasn't actually pointed at the approaching man, but she was ready to use it. Alou was very much of the opinion that you only pointed your gun at someone if you intended to fire, otherwise you were just scaring people. The woman with the shotgun shouted something and people in the group started to panic. The blurry man had stopped moving, but hadn't responded to Captain Alou at all. Then came a voice. What's going on, Jackie? We turned to view this new threat. But I think we all agreed very quickly he wasn't much of a threat. More importantly, if this person decided to cause us trouble, the most efficient course of action would be allow nature to take its course. He did not look well. The man's skin was a pale yellow, with large grey patches and dark red lesions were prominent on his face. He was of average height, but was so bent over he lost five inches. His right leg seemed twisted and had to be dragged along behind him. His red hair existed only in seemingly random clumps on his head. The woman with the shotgun, presumably Jackie, quickly spoke. A moment ago this shotgun-wielding woman had seemed formidable, but she had changed instantly. She tried to speak, but could barely form words. Do we have visitors? the man asked as he slowly moved forward. Well, put the gun down, Jackie. We should welcome visitors. They're not staying, Leyland. They're dangerous, said Jackie. They're armed. The frail man, Leyland, kept moving forward and asked Martina if we were dangerous. She smiled and explained we came as friends. That's good enough for me, said Leyland in a friendly manner. Jackie, could you find somewhere for these people to rest tonight where we can discuss things more in the morning? Jackie was clearly unhappy with the situation, but for whatever reason, didn't feel like she could argue with Leyland. After a tense moment, Jackie lowered the shotgun and agreed to find us somewhere to rest. Leyland clapped his hands together happily, informed us that he needed to rest and would see us in the morning. 
He walked through the crowd, who quickly parted for him. There were a few minutes of silence while he slowly made his way home, walking past all the tents and buildings, heading towards what I assumed was the abandoned military bunker. Once he was out of sight, the talking started again. Most of the people went home, but Jackie stayed with us and showed us to an empty building and assured us that sleeping bags would be brought for us. As soon as Jackie and the other people had provided us with bedding and left, everyone sprang into action. The soldiers took up positions guarding the doors and windows, while the rest of us huddled together to talk. It didn't take long to reach a consensus that something weird was going on. Some people might have dismissed the blurry man, the hostile reaction, the unusually welcome and incredibly ill Leyland is just the oddness that comes from being separated from civilization for so long, but we had found in the past that it was safest to assume the worst. The first thing we decided on was that Leyland was extremely suspicious. He seemed able to force the rest of the town into following him, even though everyone else seemed to want us to leave. The fact that he had presumably come from and returned to the abandoned bunker had been noted by everyone. As for the blurry man, everyone who had seen him agreed that there was something not right there. For today's edition of Who's On Board, I'm joined by Dr. Jana Klemenko, who is a neocryptozoologist. Good morning, Dr. Klemenko. Oh, please, call me Jana. We don't need to be formal. Of course. Now, Jana, I'm sure many of my listeners will know that cryptozoology is the study of creatures that have not been proven to exist. Your Loch Ness Monsters, your Chukacabra. What is a neo-cryptozoologist? Well, I used to be your basic common or garden zoologist. I studied large predator animals. Tigers were my speciality. Before the apocalypse, I had a very dim view of cryptozoology. You mean you didn't believe in it? Yes, and I was right not to believe in it. Before the apocalypse, these creatures didn't exist. I made the sensible and entirely scientific decision not to believe in many of the creatures before the apocalypse. In the old days, some raving loon would come in with a photograph of an out-of-focused blur and tell us it was a yeti. But in my office, we've got the frozen head of a yeti that I shot in the Pyrenees. And it is a yeti? Oh, I don't study myths, Richard. I can't tell you that it's the same creature described in ancient legends, but yes, it's a big, white, bear-like creature that walks on two legs and lives in mountains. Yeti works for me. Now, you mentioned that you had its head in your office. Did you kill this creature? Tracked it and killed it myself. But when you studied tigers, you didn't shoot them? Shoot a tiger? They're an endangered species. There's still an endangered species list? Oh, not an official one, but there weren't many left before the apocalypse, and I can't imagine they've fared too well since. But are Yeti not endangered? What I'm getting at is that in the past you were a scientist. Now you seem half scientist, half monster slayer. Come on, Richard. You know we've had to redefine some things. Yetis are bloody dangerous things, but yes, it's fair to say I do as much killing as studying. So what have you studied and or killed? Oh, let's see. Um, Yetis, as I mentioned. Vampires. Zombies. A basilisk. No dragons, as they don't seem to exist even now. 
a shame, really. You mentioned vampires. How do you kill a vampire? <laughs> oh, we can talk about that, but there's far more interesting things about vampires. Please indulge me. Oh, okay. Well, this is true for vampires and anything else going. If you put enough holes in it, you'll kill it. There are literally no silver bullets for killing these creatures. If you thrust a wooden stake into a vampire's heart, you will kill it. But that will kill a number of things. These creatures aren't magic, but some of them are very tough. I've killed four vampires, and three of them I shot. One of them I set on fire. Fire is usually good too. You mentioned four more interesting things about vampires? Oh, fascinating creatures, their social structure, their mating habits. Mating habits? Don't they just turn humans into vampires? Hmm, it's, it's more complicated than that. First, there are three classes of vampire, all with their own behaviour and biology. The most common are the quadruped vampires, and these creatures are true vampires. Animals driven by animal instincts. No language, no planning. Animals. These are the vampires I'm concerned with, as the other two types are, essentially, humans suffering from parasites or disease. Quadruped vampires mate, as all animals do, have young that grow into adults. We've talked a lot about creatures that are very hostile. Or the creatures that you study that are more benign, or perhaps even beneficial to humans? It would be more accurate to say that um, most of the creatures thrown up by the apocalypse are dangerous predators, or extremely resilient creatures who will defend their territory violently. But there are some really cute animals as well, mm, like Kiarans. They're adorable miniature bears that when fully grown, are about the size of a hamster? Uh, or Hanuvians, sort of like flying giraffes. But don't forget, while they might look cute, many of them are still extremely dangerous. Finally, Yana, what advice would you give to someone who comes across a species that you would study? Hmm. Call a neocryptozoologist, and if none are available, Shoot it. Thank you for your time, Yona. We agreed to keep on our guard and wait to see what happened the next morning. It was possible we were just overanalyzing everything and seeing dangers where they were not. The soldiers stayed on shifts during the night and I managed to get a few hours of uneasy sleep. At one point I woke up and was sure the blurry man was inside the room. When I roused myself, he was no longer there. Again, I couldn't be sure if this was just my paranoid brain seeing things that weren't there, or if there was something more to it. In the morning, Jackie reappeared, and to everyone's relief, hadn't brought her shotgun. We were taken to what seemed to be serving as a town hall. There was a small stage with folding chairs set up to accommodate everyone. Jackie didn't seem in the mood to talk and answered any questions with as short an answer as possible. The previous night, she had seemed angry and defensive. But in the town hall, she just looked scared. The CJ representatives, Captain Ulu and Clark Olsen, were shown to seats on the stage. The soldiers stayed standing and the rest of us sat where we could, with me and Zofia sitting together. The town hall filled up with people and I kept looking round for the blurry man, couldn't see him anywhere. And then Leyland arrived. 
It seemed that once he had got here, the meeting had begun and he made his way onto the stage. All of the townspeople had stopped talking as soon as he appeared and stood. Taking his time, he carefully climbed the stairs and took the one remaining seat on the stage. He made a gesture to Martina, who, taking this cue, stood and introduced herself. Again, she went into her well-rehearsed introduction. We were from the government. We were friends. We would help them. The isolation was over. I have seen Martina give this speech to rapturous applause, and admittedly, on more than one occasion, someone has accused her of being a witch. This time there was silence, and everyone was looking to Leyland, and after a dramatic pause in which he got to his feet and shook his head, No. I don't think we're interested, he said, but stayed standing. I think this finally broke Martina's patience. What are you talking about? Not interested. Not interested in civilization? Leyland looked at the crowd and nodded again. Yes, not interested. Martina laughed. We have medicine. Soldiers to protect you. We have electricity, for God's sake. Leyland turned to face Martina. We don't need those things. We do need you, though. My heart was beating faster and I had a distinct sense of deja vu. I've been in situations like this before, finding a town, offering help, and them trying to capture us to be used as slaves, sacrificed to some heathen god, or even just eaten. All of you are welcome to join our town, said Leyland, stretching out his arms as if offering us a great gift. It was at this point that Captain Alou took charge of the situation. Everyone move out, she shouted. If anyone tries to stop us, they will be shot. This is your only warning. All of us jumped up, eager to get out of the town. Sophia had her cavalry sabre in one hand and her automatic pistol in the other. Much to our surprise, none of the townspeople tried to stop us. But as we turned to face the door, the blurry man was stood there. Captain Alou had drawn her pistol and pointed at him. Stand aside. I won't ask again, she said. The man didn't move or respond in any way. True to her word, Captain Alou didn't ask again and fired. Captain Tessie Alou is a highly trained soldier an expert with firearms, professional, reliable, capable. She wouldn't miss at this range. She couldn't miss at this range. It was unthinkable, virtually impossible. And yet the blurry man was still standing. She fired again to the same result. Captain Alou slowly backed away from the door, her pistol trained on the blurry man. She shouted to her soldiers to find another exit, and then more of them appeared. More people were in the doorway, and they were all like the blurry man. I looked to Captain Alou for reassurance, and while she didn't look panicked, people like her do not panic. She looked very concerned. We all ran to the stage, and suddenly, as if walking through the walls, they were behind us. Zofia instinctively slashed at one of her sabre, the blade passing harmlessly through the body, leaving no mark or any sign of blood. The blurry woman Zofia had slashed at lifted up one hand and tapped it onto Zofia's forehead. For a second, nothing happened. Then Zofia took a step back, swayed, and then fell to the ground. I knelt down beside her and could see the same red lesions that were on Leyland were now on her face as well. The blurry people had formed the ring around us, but were not moving any closer. Leyland coughed to get attention. Perhaps we could now discuss the arrangements for you living here. I looked at Sophia and then to the people in our group. None of us had any idea what to do next. We'll leave it there for this week, 
of our group seemingly in terrible danger. At the End of the Line was written, performed and produced by Richard Oliver. Victoria Dubendorf is our audio engineer who works on making everything sound better. Find Victoria on Twitter at Tyranatori, T-Y-R-A-N-A-T-O-R-Y. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash Chip Michael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Sage and Savant podcast, which I highly recommend. In this week's episode, Dr. Yana Klemenko was played by the talented Emily Wang. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostAPOCPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help, should tweet us or send an email to at the end of the line podcast at gmail.com. To listen to episodes and get more information on the show, including episode transcripts, please go to our website at the end of the line podcast dot squarespace dot com.